0: Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. And I love bringing to you people who have been focused for a long time on their own growth and development and also committed to helping others achieve their full potential. And you're going to love my guest today because she has done both of these things really throughout her life. And I'd like to introduce you to Jacqueline Wales. Welcome to my show.
1: It's wonderful to be here, Meredith. Thank you.
0: You know, before we get started and before I even, you know, go over your introduction, I want to just give a shout out to two people. One is Frank Hagen, who had this wonderful networking group called the Networking Hub that we both attended in July. And then you were in a breakout session with my great friend, Laban Ditchburn, and Laban suggested that we connect. So I'm indebted to both of them because the very first time Jacqueline and I spoke, we had this instant connection and almost knew immediately after saying hello, we were going to be longtime friends. And uh, and I think that's just how things have been evolving. So thank you, uh, Laban and Frank, for this great connection that you probably didn't even realize
1: <laughs> you had mm-hmm.
0: helped to create.
1: Yeah, and um, it's true actually because I spoke with Frank afterwards, and and Frank had said, you know, what a wonderful individual you were, and I said, yes, we're we're all connecting here, which is is really excellent. So yeah, but serendipitous but beautiful.
0: Yes, and you know, I've I've discovered so many of my podcast guests through various introductions. So I just. It's wonderful having a a world around me filled with people who have a similar mission as I do. And we're going to explore some of the ways that Jacqueline helps her clients and organizations um, in her work. But first, let me give you a little bit of information about her that will help you appreciate where she's come from. At only 16 years old. Jacqueline fled from her childhood home in a desperate search for happiness. Looking in all the wrong places, she left a trail of abandoned children and a pattern of self-abuse that threatened her life. But that's just the beginning of her story. From Leith, Scotland, to London, England, from the California coast to Paris, Amsterdam, New York, and Bali, Jacqueline's life has been a journey of self-discovery, awakening, and joy in the face of fear. That's our key word today. Jacqueline believes that being fearless is not the absence of fear, but the courage to take the next step. And today, she's an author, keynote speaker, and trusted advisor to successful, high-achieving women. And she is an unwavering champion for being fearless. We're going to talk about some of the ideas from her latest book, The Fearless Factor at Work, which I highly recommend that you purchase, study and apply. She has some of the best questions in her book, in addition to great content that I think would be extremely valuable for anyone, both in work and life. So let's dive in. You know, my introduction of you just was a little tip of the iceberg of what your life has been like. And I would love for you to share some of your life experiences that have led you to where you are today with this passion to help others become fearless.
1: Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And um, yes, life has indeed handed me a tremendous amount of opportunities, that's that's the word I would like to use, opportunities to experience both the highs and the very lows of what life has to offer. It's starting in my early age when I grew up in a very dysfunctional family where there was a lot of alcoholism and violence and it led me to some very dark places. And when we talk about abandoned children, I gave my first child up for adoption at the age of 20. Uh, I had no idea who the father was at that point in time. So that gives you an idea of how much screwing around I was doing at that particular time. And I had her for three months before I gave her up for adoption because uh, I realized that there was no way I was going to be a single parent. And not repeat the patterns that I had grown up with. So the child was given up for adoption. I then got married, and and that didn't last very long either, about six years. But we had another, we had a child then, uh, a son, uh, who I left when he was three and a half, and I moved from London to San Francisco. So there was a lot of loss and a lot of agony uh, and a lot of self abuse that was going on during that that entire period. And this is only up until I'm about age twenty seven. So you can imagine there was a lot packed into those particular years Um, when I got pregnant again for the third time when I was about 35 and I was with my current husband I've now been with for 43 years which just blows me away Um, uh, then it was time for me to decide to to really take a hard hard look at where what I was running away from and what it was I needed to do to improve and and really figure out the nasty self-destructive stuff that was part of my life. A lot of drugs and alcohol along the way as well. So um, I made a decision at that point. I was pregnant and I said, she will leave me before I leave her. And so when people say to me, why, why is change so important to us? It was for my children, because I knew that uh, with the generations of, of abuse that had been heaped on my particular family of origin, I was very prone to having to being able to repeat that if I wasn't careful, uh, and so for my children's sake, I decided to to really go to the full transformation of me, and and that was the journey began when I was thirty five, and it really was a lot of reinvention, a lot of redis of, of discovery of figuring out what worked for me and. So uh and as an example of that, I went into AA for five years thinking I was I was potentially an alcoholic, but it turned out it wasn't about the drinking, it was about the thinking. And the thinking piece is really a big piece of my work. It's about how do we change the narrative of who we are and what matters to us. And that was really born of my own experiences, uh, in in effect. So in my 40s, I eventually, after a lot of therapy and a lot of of, of deep dark places to go to uh, I started writing I started making music I took up martial arts and uh, I was traveling the globe with with my husband and my family and it it became a constant unfolding of the potential that was within me Uh, interesting to think that at this point in my life that at one point I thought I wasn't a creative individual how wrong can you be um and so you know it it kind of evolved and then when i was in my 50s um life changed uh quite quite re- dramatically in in one level uh and so i decided i needed to find a career because i'd never really had a career career i'd always been able to kind of choose my own path if you like uh and so in my 50s i took up coaching because it was suggested that uh, by a coach a very seasoned coach who said You've experienced so much fear in your life and you've got so much to share. I think this would be a great opportunity for you to go forth and do this. And at the time I was like, well, what do I know about coaching? Nothing. So, you know, you go learn. And of course, that's been the secret to my entire life. It's like when the rabbi in Paris showed up and said, we need uh, a cantor for the high holidays. And I said, what do I know about Jewish liturgy? He said, you can learn. So I ended up becoming a cantor for five years for synagogues in Paris and Amsterdam just because I could sing. I had been professionally trained. So, you know, there was that. So anyways, it's just been a a continual journey of learning throughout my lifetime. And of course, when I came to the coaching part, I discovered that I was coming home. This was exactly what I was meant to be doing because I've been giving advice all my life. Uh, Except nobody paid me for it, of course, but that became the, the driver. So the last 17 years, that's what I've devoted my life to. And because of my life experiences, there's very little that comes my way that I don't recognize. And there's very little that I teach and talk about that I haven't personally experienced, which makes my connection to my clients that much more relatable, that much more Uh, uh, there's more trust involved there because they know I'm not just talking theoretically. I've been there, done that. Uh, And so I'm passionate about helping women specifically rise up. I I really do feel that for years I had a very quiet voice. I, I allowed other people to make decisions for me. I wasn't able to speak up properly for myself. And now, of course, at this point in my life, I'm like, here I am. This is what I do. I don't really care if you like it or not. It is who I am, but that's that's a maturity piece right there. But I want to see more women take ownership and authority of their their career and their life because we need more women in powerful roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite frankly, um, and that's 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 my driver at this point. Yeah, that's
0: great. There's so much we can unpack here. I love um, your story and the fact that you are relatable because you've lived so much of what others might experience, and they understand that you're coming from that world of having lived it, not just studied about it. Mm-hmm. Before we go deep into this whole idea of being fearless, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how do you define fear, and in particular, fear in the workplace what does that look like
1: so when we think about fear first and foremost it's an emotion it's an emotional response to something just like sadness or anger or even joy for that matter um i think about fear in terms of it's primarily imagination based we make up stories it is the stories we tell ourselves that is what fear is generated by so, for instance, if you start thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough, which is fundamental to a lot of people who struggle with fear. I'm not good enough. Well, what are you going to do around that? Well, you're going to look for the evidence that you're really not good enough. So maybe you self-sabotage. Maybe you, you are not stepping up and taking full ownership and authority in the world because you don't feel like you're capable. And in the workplace particularly, we see this, and again, because I've worked with highly accomplished women over the years, we see this again and again that there's a lack of speaking up, number one. Um, you know, they have an opinion or they have an opinion and it's put on the table and then it's it's glossed over by usually their male counterparts. And instead of stepping back into it again, they they subdue and come back pull away from it. There's a lack of decision making in the workplace. You know, well, maybe that won't be approved of or maybe that won't work. You know, that, that kind of gets into thinking as well, as opposed to, you know, from the male point of view, well, let's just throw it out there and see what happens. You know, women have a a tendency to want to have all the details because they know that they're being judged in in a a double standard. And that that becomes a very difficult piece for them as well. Um, They're overlooked for promotion because they don't have enough of a presence. And we have this uh, conversation about executive presence, which I think, frankly, is BS. Um, I think it has a lot to do with, again, How assertive can a woman comfortably be? Confidence is a huge issue in this this conversation. Um, And assertion is often seen as aggressive when it comes to women pushing their point across. So we are called bitches, which is, you know, pretty common. And of course, my acronym for that is being in total charge of herself. So, you know, if we can think of it in those ways... I'm assertive. I'm an assertive individual at this point in my time and in, in time. And I've been called by some clients a little too assertive. But that's just exactly who I am. It's not expected from a woman to be able to be forward in her approach to things. And so in the workplace my my job is to help women really claim that confidence to be able to say I I deserve to be here, mm-hmm. which is Piece of that. So the fear piece for me is is the stories we tell ourselves and the ways in which we respond to that internal discomfort. And I like to say that fear matters to your success because it's a driver for growth. When it shows up in your life, whoa, okay, what do I need to pay attention to here? What am I avoiding? What am I refusing to meet? Because on the other side of fear is the opportunity. And we miss out on so many opportunities because we, we hold back because we avoid. For various, you
0: know, as I think about what you're saying, Jacqueline, this idea of reframing how we look at this sensation of fear that happens to all of us, mm-hmm. it sounds like what you're one of the things you help people do is reduce the time from feeling that fear to moving into a different place with it so that it becomes more of a propeller of action or more positive thinking that leads to better action. Would that be accurate?
1: Absolutely, and the one thing that I say to my clients when they say, when fear shows up, what do we do? Well, ask yourself a very simple question. Do you have empirical evidence that that fear is true? If you don't, then it's a story. It's a story. And many people get caught up in their fear of the future. Oh, well, I'm not going to have enough money. I'm not going to have the right job. I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Well, how about we change that narrative up a little bit and say, what would it look like if you actually did get that? How different would your life be? What changes would you have to make in order to meet the challenge of whatever it is you want to do? It's too many people play small you know it's like well i i really and i did too i don't know if i can really do that i don't know if i'm going to get the support for that i don't know if anybody will really appreciate what that point of view is blah 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 but when you take the opposite and the bold approach which is i'm just going to put it out there and see what happens that becomes a whole different conversation but again it's going to come back to that confidence issue do you believe in yourself enough to be able to pull it off do you believe that you have the, the skills and tools necessary for you to create that and if you don't then who do you need to tap into what resources do you need in order for that to be true for you because it's out there and people are there to support you you just have to give them an opportunity to know that that's where you want to go
0: mm-hmm. you can Questions—they're so
1: it gets so more
0: valuable, and that to me is one of the wonderful strengths in this great book of yours, the Fearless Factor at Work. All of the questions you invite your readers to really take the time to think about and and respond to to help mm-hmm. get insights about themselves. I hope my listeners are taking notes because the questions you just mentioned here that you ask your clients are really essential. Because what I was picturing as I was listening to you is this gap. You know, we've got this playing small over here. We've got this confidence, assertive, you know, courageous person over here. And there's a gap that needs to be bridged in order to even see yourself, myself, as capable of not playing small. So what... I guess I'm curious, what do you hear from your clients who tend to play small and you're inviting them to step into their unique greatness uh, and yet they're hesitant? What are some ways that you help them move further along the path so they do become more fearless and more courageous?
1: I think the number one thing is you have to build your allyship. You have to know that there are people around you who truly support you, who believe in you and are willing to to go to bat for you. Now, I've had clients, for instance, I had one female client, PhD, very accomplished woman, but she had a boss who was absolutely determined and a female boss, by the way, who was determined to keep her in her place and my conversation with her was in order for her to get beyond that she had to look above her boss to see who have i do i who do i have great relationships with and how can i have conversations with that individual who has greater influence so that i can find ways to to maneuver passed her to be able to do now and this woman was an organizational psychologist who worked in the nuclear industry this was full of regulations and, and amazing structures of of you know one bureaucracy, it, bureaucracy <laughs> exactly so um this was a big deal for her but she took it on And she started to think about who does she go to conferences with? Who does she talk with regularly? Who is above the pay grade of the woman who is her boss? And how can she build the relationships so that opportunities, when they arise, she's going to be thought of as the person to go to? So that's one way of addressing that. The other piece is when you're in a meeting and someone shuts you down, you're feeling very uncomfortable about that. But you've got to be bold enough to be able to say, excuse me, I put that idea forward about five minutes ago and kind of glossed over it. But I'd like to go back to that again. And I acknowledge and you do this, too, in your book, The Communications Issue. Acknowledge the person who has basically stolen your idea. It's like, "Yeah, you Definitely got it. But let me add to that. So you're asserting yourself into the conversation in a way that makes a difference. Another example recently, a corporate client, she was being excluded from meetings because they felt that uh, that her particular input was not necessary for these meetings, whereas she saw it as being very important. Well, after having gone through my, my transformational strategies program, she realized that she needed to insert herself into that conversation. So the next time she was told she wasn't needed, she said, uh excuse me but i am and i will be there end of story there was no discussion on why she just said i will be there and left it at that and she said i've never done that before but i because i understood my limiting beliefs around this because that's what it's all about at the end of the day is that that gap is limiting beliefs what are we holding on to that are not actually true And how do you hold them up to the light? Which, of course, as you said, my book program is deeply self-reflective. So I really want people to think about what that really is for you. So these are some examples of how I've worked with women specifically in the past to help them bring more of themselves into the workplace. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, again, I've seen too many examples of holding back. And we lose. We lose the opportunities. We lose money. We lose our respect in a lot of way. Mm -hmm. Self-respect.
0: Yes. You know, I think it would be really instructive to spend a few minutes just having you talk about what are some of the messages we get growing up and also into our adult years that cause us to conclude that we have these beliefs that are true that are simply from our imagination i love the fact that you said earlier that fear comes from our imagination i can't remember who said it Uh, fear is a misuse of our imagination instead of thinking about what we want we start worrying over what may happen not realizing we could replace those worrisome thoughts with positive ones that right. would serve us so much better. Yeah. So I I think it would be really useful. Share with us what are some of the messages we hear and then what are some of those beliefs that we conclude and have and hold on to to our detriment
1: that yeah. Um, I think it depends on the generation we're talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you and I, uh, our generation, was that you know women had a place in the kitchen basically, and uh, depending on on how you grew up. I mean, I I certainly didn't grow up with any you can be whatever you want to be messages. That that was never part of my background. Uh, there was there was a sense that that females have a subordinate role to play. We are the homemakers. We are the mothers. We are the, the child people. Um, you know, there was a whole bunch of, of that stereotypical stuff that, that we had to break free of. Now, certainly in my generation, we did have Betty Friedan and, and the whole women's movement that, that erupted around the sixties and into the seventies. Not that we've made that much progress, frankly, but, um, there, there's definitely, there was an, a, an attempt to be far more uh, evident and and what shall I say? I want to go back to the word assertive in our, our worlds. Now, if I talk to millennials, um, I've got millennial children and uh, they are women and they are very clear about, you know, what they're willing to put up with and what they're not willing to put up with. And, and the messages that I say are most harmful We struggle with negative thinking. Negative thinking can be a default for many people. I can't, I'm stupid, I'm not capable, I'm blah, blah, blah. And I like to say, ask yourself who's talking when that voice shows up in your head. Because I guarantee you, it wasn't you who put it there in the first place. You know, I go back to my own history. My father told me for years I would never amount to anything. Well, guess what? For a long time, I actually proved that to be correct on a certain level. But internally, that was not really what was happening. It was the message that lingered in my brain. So when we have negative thinking going on, it began somewhere in the past. And I believe that our influences and our environmental influences, whether it's from your parents or your family of origin or some boss who threw something at you one day and, and somehow you absorbed that and thought, well, that must be right, because it came from an authority, um, as opposed to challenging it and questioning it. Uh so a lot of the the, the inner beliefs that we assume, especially as women, are are somehow acculturated into our existence, mm-hmm. depending on, on our experiences. And that's the piece that I'm all about, you know, again, change the narrative. What is the story you tell about who you are? And that, that's a big one right there. When people say to you, who do you think you are? How about we just change the tone of that and say, who do you think you are? I love that. That's so great.
0: <laughs> it's such a perfect question, too, because we often are so busy doing That we don't slow down long enough to really examine, you know, who who am I being and who do I want to be? Mm. I know for myself, this self-criticism kicking in without the replacement of questions like you ask and an alternative narrative, it can keep us stuck Mm. unnecessarily in a place where i won't say it's a downward spiral but it's certainly unproductive in terms of helping us get energized in order to do braver things you know the whole thing of of being brave being courageous i just love your advocacy for that and the stories you just shared they don't have to be dramatic earth-changing but when you take one step, and I'd love for you to talk about this with clients, when you've seen them take one step towards being more assertive, more courageous, what impact that has on their confidence in all other areas of their life?
1: Well, it's, it definitely has a knock-on effect. There's no question. It's a, you know, If you take one step forward and you succeed, Um, then you're buoyed by the energy that that produces. And you're thinking, okay, so I can do this. It's like when people say making change and they think there's a huge gap between, you know, here and there. And maybe there's a cliff that they're going to fall off. And I go, well, frequently it's a couple of inches when you step forward. You know, it's not that huge that goes on. It's just simply, oh, because here's the thing about confidence. It's not something you're going to suddenly light a fire on and there you are. It's a series of steps. It's a series of one day you look back and you go, oh, I don't do that anymore. I don't undermine myself. I don't seek approval. Here's another big one for you. A lot of women seek approval. I need validation of my existence. I need validation that I have a right to exist is, is a lot of the conversation that goes on for many women who consider themselves victims of life. Now, I like to say nobody's a victim unless you want to make yourself one. So that's a whole other conversation. But the point being is that it is those small steps. And sometimes it's a step backwards, too. Sometimes you'll meet a situation where you go, oh, I didn't handle that one really well. But that brings me to something that's really critical to the growth process. Self-compassion. You Mm -hmm. must have self-compassion. You must be willing to say to yourself, yeah, you didn't do too well today, but tomorrow there's another opportunity. Tomorrow you'll do better. The self-love and self-compassion that comes with that is, is really, really important when you're pushing yourself because the whole change process is about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And I think it was Tony Robbins who said the quality of your life is determined by how comfortable you can be being uncomfortable. And there is there's a lot to be said for that, because change doesn't happen without some kind of chaos, whether it's an internal chaos or an external chaos. There's something that has to be managed in order for you to take that next big leap. Mm -hmm. And that's why when people say I'm looking for answers and I say, no, you're looking for good questions. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what my work is all about Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I remember in your book talking about having three questions that you ask new clients to think about. And if you haven't already shared those, if you'll talk about what are those questions you ask them, I think that would be very useful for my listeners.
1: So I think the the first question is, you know, are you, you know, what's your biggest fear? That's, that's number one. What is your biggest fear? Well, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna fail. That's another that's a big one. I hear that all the time. Oh, I feel like I'm gonna fail. Then it comes down to well, I feel like I'm not good enough. And then I'll say to them, is that true? And of course the answer comes back, of course not. Well, why do you behave as if it's true? That becomes the next question. So when we get past the fear questions, what would it look like for you to be the best version of you? Frequently, I don't know. I don't know, because I've never put any time into thinking about what that looks like. OK, but if you could, what would that be for you? What do you want to be in the world? No, what do you want to do? Because that's that's a whole other thing. You know, um, Who do you want to be? Because that always starts with that. That's another one. And I'm not sure quite what the questions you are alluding to are, are in there. But, you know, where I really want to go with this is number fear. It's, you know, number one is the fear. Number two is who, what's the best version of you look like? And number th- three would be if you could achieve anything in your, your life. What would that look like? What do you, you know, what does it mean for you? And it's not about status and cars and houses and all the rest of it. I've heard over and over again, people want to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I interviewed over 90 women last year, highly accomplished women, for a new book that I'll be writing sometime in the near future. And when I asked the question about what's your legacy, it was always going to be about making a difference. I want to make a difference. Okay, great. So you want to make a difference what does that look like? My mission in life is to change the world one person at a time. That's what I said 17 years ago, and I'm still saying it. So I'm very clear that that's the difference I will make. Mm -hmm. What difference will you make? Because we're put on this earth to make a difference, whether it's with our immediate family, or it's in our jobs, or it's in the way we volunteer with our community. We're all here to make a difference one way or another.
0: That's great. Yeah, those I I couldn't even remember myself some of those questions, but they make perfect sense. I just remembered when I was reading that in your book, I thought, oh, I want to get her to talk about these, because there's so many wonderful questions you ask, and those are three excellent ones for people to ponder. You mentioned this whole thing of failing and the fear of failure. And I really would like you to talk about that, because the fear of failure holds us back. And sometimes it's around the stories we create of what failure means about us.
1: Mm, so yeah.
0: how do you help folks reframe the way they think about that whole idea of failure?
1: So number one, I think of our, our lives as failing our way to success because it's through our failures, our mistakes, the things that we we didn't accomplish that we're learning what works what doesn't work so failure in my book is all about an expectation a decision a choice that did not go the way that you had planned period and there's only one word that applies to that next <laughs>
0: love that
1: <laughs> so when we think about you know our our so-called fear of failure and you find it a lot in people who are very analytical who need to cross the T's, dot the I's, make sure that everything is lined up. And for people who have strong perfectionist tendencies, which turns out to be a lot of accomplished people have that going on for them. High standards need to make sure that everything is, is pushed to, as far out as you can. And I like to say perfection is the enemy of excellence because you know there's no such thing as perfection. Uh, there's no end point. But uh, the, the, the point about failure is this. Our fear of failure is simply about the loss of reputation, the loss of something physical, the loss of, of something tangible that, that we, we consider important. But I think it's more about, it highlights the fact that I'm not good enough, which brings us back to the fear issue again. That fear of failure, Is ultimately I'm not good enough so let's reframe that let's look at it from the point of view of you did something that didn't work out so what have you met anyone in your life who did something that didn't work out everyone everyone so therefore failure is a natural part of our existence And there's lots of ways to to think about failures. It's a prototype. It was an iteration. It was simply something that didn't quite go the way that I had planned for it to to go. And unless it's going to cost you your life or cost maybe several millions of dollars, uh, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. Because you always do. You know, and I like to say that we're going to be doing that for the rest of our life. Our life is an iteration. How many times have you reinvented yourself? How many times have you had to redesign whatever it is that you are doing for your life? Over a lifetime, I mean, I'm 70 years old and you've heard some of the history. So you can guess uh, dozens and dozens of times. And there were th- things that I'm not proud of. But there were things that I I healed and there were things that I put a lot of work into making it better and succeeded. And that's it.
0: I love that. It's so important. We spend so much time, I think, fretting over things and regretting things that we can't change because now they're in the past. that I I like this approach that you're advocating. It makes so much sense. One final thing I wanna ask you about because it's a part of this um, five point model that you have trust. And I think it's really important in the workplace, especially, but also at home, there are tangible things that can be done to build trust. And you describe so many of them in your book. We can't go into all of them, but what would you say are one or two things that a leader, any individual could do to accelerate that process of creating a trust, trusting relationship with another person.
1: So number one is you have to trust yourself. And a lot of people don't trust themselves because mm-hmm. they see how they wavered, they don't make decisions, they... They hold back. Uh, they have so many negative things going on in their, their brains. Um, so the trust yourself becomes a big piece. And how do you trust yourself? You become more self-aware. Self-awareness is really the first key to proper self-actualization. And I like to say when you are really aware of your strengths, your weaknesses, of who you you want to be and how you show up in the world, then you're learning how to trust yourself. When you trust yourself, other people will trust you more. And the reason for that is because you walk the talk. You are very clear in your, your positioning with people. So getting trust with other people is basically saying and doing what you say you will. Very simple. Don't, don't go, you know, side of the mouth talking. Don't Don't backtrack on, you know, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then you don't. Don't make promises you can't keep. Uh, All of those things are pretty obvious on a certain level, but too many people are just completely ignorant of of how that actually works. Because let's face it, as a leader, what's the first thing you want is to build trust. Trust builds loyalty. And you do that through communication. And it's something you and I are very passionate about, is learn how to communicate effectively learn how to open up so that people see your vulnerability for instance they'll trust you then if they can see that you're not just this you know demigod who's got it all together um most of us don't frankly you know and i don't care who you are what you're doing in the world you've got your insecurities for sure be able to say i don't know that's a big one right there there's too many people who are leading in this world who are absolutely terrified to say i don't know. Because other people will diminish them or they will see them as less than blah, blah, blah. But when you can conf- confidently say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that, that is a game changer right there. But number one, learn how to trust that you have the best intentions, that you have an understanding of what it is that you are bringing to the game, whatever that game might be. And you're doing it with integrity. You're doing it with an ability to respect other people and care for other people. Because when you do all of that, and when you are living in encouragement and gratitude for other people, which is something you talk about in your book, um, then I think we are are in the game of building trust and being able to create relationships that matter. And that's what it comes down to. Because when you think about it, The people in your life that have created the biggest impact are people that you trusted and people who showed up authentically to be there for you when you needed it.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent point. So true. I just had a few people just jump right into my head based on what you were just describing there. We could keep talking um, because you have so much, just such a wealth of experience and wisdom. Um, and I want to give people a chance to learn more about you and get a copy of your wonderful book, The Fear Factor at Work. So share how they can connect with you, and also get a copy of your book and learn more about the services you offer and the the new program that you just mentioned earlier too.
1: Thank you. Um, So the book's available on Amazon, as, as all books are, so I'd be very happy for you to go there and check it out. Uh, My website is JacquelineWales.com. And there is a a wealth of of different materials on that website that you might find interesting. Uh, A lot of people have said there's too much, but there's never too much as far as I'm concerned. And my latest program is called Transformational Strategies for Success. It's a self-directed personal development program that is deeply self-reflective and really takes people into the, the whole aspect of who are you, where do you want to go, and the gap is all the limiting beliefs that you have. And how do we overcome and demolish a lot of the thinking that goes around those limiting beliefs? So the program is highly immersive and, and as I said, deeply self-reflective. And I'm very proud of of what was created uh, in that program. And you can find it at transformyourfear.com. Transform
0: great title, transformyourfear.com. We'll be sure and put that on the show notes page, too.
1: That's great.
0: Thank you so much for being with me today. I love what you shared. I love who you are and the commitment and passion you have now to help others, you know, hopefully accelerate their progress through some of the things that took both of us decades <laughs> to experience and learn and grow from. Uh, you are such a delight. And I am, I'm so happy to know you and so happy to have had you share all the things you did with my audience today. It was really valuable.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Meredith. Really my pleasure and, and, and joy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into my podcast.
0: Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.